Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be looking at Psalm 100. Now, you may be looking for a church to call your own, a place that you can join with other believers to study and to follow and serve God. We'd love to have you at Calvary. You can find us at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And for more information, you can reach us and find us through calvaryfayetteville.com. Our email is info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Or you can call us at 479-442-4634. Now, today's message is entitled, Turning Thanksgiving into Thanksgiving, taken from Psalm 100. Let's listen together. Well, it is... Thanksgiving week, and I don't often step aside from whatever we are studying, whatever book of the Bible we're uh, making our way through uh, in order to acknowledge special days. It, it can really break a rhythm of, uh, of expository preaching and teaching through a book of the Bible or a particular topic, but I just felt compelled this week to... Um, uh, to talk about this thing, this attitude of gratitude, having a grateful heart to the Lord. And we express it in the day. I mean, we even, you know, it's on our calendars. It's a national holiday, Thanksgiving. And it's a day for pausing and expressing appreciation to our Creator for His blessings to us. Uh, but Thanksgiving and living a life of Thanksgiving ought to be something that that just never ceases for God's people. And Thanksgiving itself is the outward expression of what should be uh, a heart of gratitude towards the Lord, not only for who He is, but for what He has done. And uh, that's what I want to talk about today. But let me, let me give you a picture, first of all. Let me, let me kind of paint you a picture uh, just to remind you what all we have as Americans to be thankful for. If you were to take the present population of the world and reduce it down to 1,000 people living in one city and keeping the same ratio and balances of, of what life is like for the population of the world, if this population were 1,000 people living in one city, these five statements would be true. Number one, 46 of the 1,000 would be Americans. 954 would represent the rest of the world. Only 46 would be Americans. Now, of those 1,000 people, point number two, these 46 would receive one-half of all the income of the entire city. The other 954 would have to split the other half of the income. The life expectancy, this is number three, the life expectancy of these 46 people would be 75 years, while the life expectancy of the other 954 would be 40 years. We could expect to live twice as long. 
Now, follow this. It's a little bit kind of hard to grasp. These 46 people would eat 70% above the daily food requirement for them. These 46 would have almost twice what they need in the way of food. While 80% of the people living in that city would never get a balanced diet. Man, that kind of ruins Thursday, doesn't it? Just thinking about that. In fact, the kitchen disposals, you know what that is. It's the place we, anyway, what we throw away with leftovers. The kitchen disposals of the 46 would eat better than 80% of the entire city. We are a blessed people. We are a blessed people. We are a blessed people. And I know you're grateful for that. But I want to distinguish between what Jonathan Edwards called natural gratitude and gracious gratitude. Pastor Dan's already touched on it in our prayer time a few minutes ago. Jonathan Edwards, and by the way, there's an insert in your worship guide if you've not already discovered it. I hope you'll read that, but not during my time in the next 30 or so minutes. Put it, put it away, Jana. You can read it later. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards a great American preacher. Some say the greatest mind that this country has ever produced. A preacher that lived in the 1700s. He said natural gratitude is a gratitude for the good things that we have at our disposal. It's having enough food to eat. It's having uh, blessings. It's having a, a warm home uh, to go home to. It, it's the things that, that we have, that we naturally experience, our freedom, our leisure, all those other things. Natural gratitude is the appreciation for those things. And why does he call it natural? Because even the natural man, meaning the unsaved man, the unsaved person, can appreciate those things. It takes no divine or spiritual insight to appreciate the blessings of life in the way of those tangible, measurable things. That's natural gratitude to be thankful for that. And that's why many, many people, by the millions will celebrate Thanksgiving this week and they will be thankful for the abundance of the things they have while they know nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But gracious gratitude is not just an appreciation for the things we've been blessed with, but it is a gratitude for who God is in His person. That He is a good God. That He is a loving God, a gracious God, a merciful God. That He is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-seeing, and all-knowing. That He is just, that He is holy, that He is truthful, that He is unchanging. All these things. Gracious gratitude 
is not just a gratitude for what God has given, but for who God is. And the reason that's gracious and not natural is you have to, it comes from a totally different place inside of you. It comes from the presence of God the Holy Spirit living in your heart. Now, Christian friend, if we are not thankful or we're not often thoughtful about the gracious goodness of God in our lives, of who God is, it's because sometimes we're too worldly thinking. Sometimes our thanksgiving, sometimes our gratitude is limited to whatever God has done for me recently. When it needs to be steadfast on who God is, regardless of what comes or goes in our lives. Amen? So I want to talk about um, Psalm 100 today, but let me give you a background to this great old psalm. It is one of the favorites in all uh, of the book of Psalms. It is the only psalm with the inscription, a psalm for giving thanks. Now you can read many psalms that would motivate you to give thanks. But this is the only one that was given that inscription, particularly Spurgeon, the great preacher, said about it, it is ablaze with grateful adoration and has for this reason been a great favorite with the people of God ever since it was written. Now actually, Psalms 93 through 99 these psalms leading up to the hundredth, are one continuous series. They proclaim one great worship song, and the title of those psalms are Jehovah is King. And then the 100th psalm provides a doxology at the end of those others, which basically closes the song and tells us how to express our gratitude to God in daily living. So that's what it's all about. Follow along. Some of you possibly could do that by memory. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, God is a triune God, and so many of his passages can be divided into threes, and that's why we preachers always have three points. There's three ways that this passage tells us to not only be thanksgiving towards the Lord, but to be thanksgiving in the way we live our lives. Folks, what I desire for us as a church family 
is that we would be people who expresses daily gracious gratitude for who God is, for natural gratitude for what God has done for us, but that our spirits of thanksgiving will spill over, and that's what thanksgiving is, is the outward flow of gratitude, that our thanksgiving will show up in thanks living every day that we live. And the psalmist here gives us three ways to do that. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, he tells us to sing God's praises. To sing His praises. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. Sing and let your voices of praise be expressed outwardly to the Lord. It never ceased to amaze me how you and I can go to an exciting football game or basketball games and we can sing and chant ourselves hoarse and then yet we can fall dumb silent when we walk into the house of God on Sunday. Now understand, these psalms were written into a Jewish context. And the Jewish people were expressive people. They were loud people and still are today. One of the most fun things to do, if you ever have the chance, and some of you have, to travel to the Holy Land is some evening in Jerusalem. Especially it's good on a Saturday evening. At the end of the Sabbath at 6 o'clock, which falls from 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday, to go down to a place like Ben Yehuda Street, which is a wide street that's been closed off, and it's a walkway, and there's shops everywhere. And all of these people that have been observing the Sabbath and have been eating their Sabbath meals and lighting their Sabbath candles, they dress up and they come out and they come out to, to the public place, the public square, and they are singing, and their arms are around each other, groups of men and groups of women dancing in circles and singing and playing their instruments and shouting to the Lord. And it's just a tiny bit expression of what it must have been like when this psalm was written. When the temple was the glorious center of all of their religious universe. And these songs like, like 93 through 99 and 100 and others would be sung as they made their way up the mount to the temple mount. As they ascended these psalms of ascent as they climbed to that place and went up the streets to where the temple was, to where God dwells among them. Now, folks, I know that God doesn't dwell in this building. The only thing that makes this place a special place is because of what it's been dedicated to do. God doesn't live here. God is no more in this room than he is under that tree outside or in your living room or down at the bowling alley. God, God is not confined to time and space anymore. God is everywhere. And yet we are to assemble 
on the Lord's Day. We're commanded to do that. And one of the greatest blessings of life, and understand, follow me now, the nearest thing to heaven on earth, believe it or not, the nearest thing to heaven on earth is when God's people come together as the communion of saints. People who have been redeemed by the grace and mercy and love of God. And we assemble together the church militant because we are still in the spiritual warfare here in this life. And in some mystical way that we cannot explain and cannot fully understand, when we gather for worship here and the first notes of the music begin to play and the first words of the songs that were selected begin to be sung, we are joining together with the church triumphant in heaven. And during that time, we are singing praises to the Lord. And I want to tell you something. To just sit there and look and listen is a sin unto God. God's people have always been a singing people. It was true in the Old Testament. It's through, true all through the Word. Take David as an example. Through all the uh, rises and falls of his life, as he wins a victory over Goliath, and then as he has the king chunking spears at him, and he's having to flee for his life and hide in rocks and in holes in the ground, and then as he later comes and enters Jerusalem as the new king, through the ups and downs of life, there's always a song on his lips. Do you remember the story of when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city? And he and the young men who were carrying the Ark and, and those who were priests and those who were designated worship leaders, they wore a linen ephod. And here is the king. He was not a priest, but he was wearing a linen ephod. He had taken off his kingly garments and he was dressed in simplicity in a righteous dress before God. And he is coming in with the Ark of the Covenant. And he is singing and he is leaping and he is dancing just without any kind of sense of, of what's the word? What, decor, well, maybe decorum, yeah, but no self-consciousness of it. He was singing and dancing to the Lord. And do you remember his wife, Michael, who was up there in the house looking down from a second-story window, and she saw him acting that way? It didn't lead her to song and praise. She hated him for it. The Bible says she was offended by it. And I'm going to tell you, there are too many people who think they know God and think they're pleasing to God who are critical of worshipers rather than worshiping themselves. If you've been saved by the grace of God, if the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, you have a song to sing. God's people have always been singing. Through all the ups and downs, David was a great example of making a joyful noise, a shout, a song to the Lord. What about Paul and Silas in the New Testament? Do you remember when they came to Philippi and they got thrown in jail? Do you remember what they did at midnight in that awful Philippian jail? They were singing praises to the Lord. 
And you know what it says about them singing praises to the Lord? It said, the other prisoners were listening. What is it with these guys? And you know the rest of the story about how God brought about their release and brought about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. What an inauspicious start for a church. Not exactly your target audience. Not exactly the way we're trained to do it nowadays where you go in and find the pretty people and the young people and the people that have something to offer. That church started with a demon-possessed girl and a Philippian jailer that was a brutal, brutal torturer of men. And Paul and Silas started one of the greatest churches in the New Testament out of a song service in a very difficult time. But not only should you sing because you have a song to sing, if you don't, if you're not a singer, you're disobedient to the Lord. You're disobedient. Listen to these words out of Colossians 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, Sing praises to Him. That's how to live a thankful life. That's how to express true gratitude. How are we to sing? We are to sing joyfully. Joyfully. That's what He said in this passage. Does it mean that even in times of lament or great sadness that you have to put on a smiley face and, and, and not be genuine? No. Certainly some of the songs we sing are songs written in minor chords during the painful times of life. But it means that that, mixed with the triumphant swelling notes of victory, all blend together to express who God is in our lives. Why should we sing? Verses 3 through 5 tell us. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Now, follow me on this. He is God in covenant with His people. He has made us in His likeness, His children. No self-made men or women here. We are God-made women and children. We are His, no longer destitute, blind, naked, lost. He is good in all of His deeds. His steadfast love, it says in verse 5, is everlasting. Let me step aside for just a minute. We'll get to those other two points, and, and we'll get out of here before too late. But, but I want to say something about His steadfast love in verse 5. His steadfast love. If you're reading from a different translation, it may read by a different word. Very likely it is. Maybe a word like grace. His grace, His grace is everlasting. Uh, the King James says, I think, His mercy is everlasting. His faithfulness, His goodness, His devotion. The reason we have such a struggle with this, and by the way, the most common translation is a word they had to make up when they translated uh, so many hundreds of years ago uh, into English. And they made up the word loving kindness. 
His loving kindness. It's because everything that the Hebrew words mean here, there's just no straight translation that explains it. It's one of the most important theological and ethical concepts in all of the Old Testament being mentioned 240 times in the Old Testament. Loving kindness, steadfast love. The, the idea here is that always, without end, unceasingly, God's strength, God's steadfastness, God's love all merge together and are expressed towards you and me. It's because of His grace. It's because of His mercy. If you take away any of those ideas of strength, steadfastness, or love, it ceases to be what the writer is saying. It always includes all of that. In the Old Testament, it is often related to marital love between a husband and a wife. God's loving kindness living in a marriage covenant with you and me. The idea is of covenant that we've committed ourselves to this and he's committed himself to us. Now listen, follow me one more step. This association of loving kindness with covenant, that God has made a covenant with us, signed a contract, so to speak, maybe that makes more sense to you, keeps it from being misunderstood. And it is applied not to everyone in the world. God's steadfast love, His loving kindness, this gracious, steadfast, merciful expression of forever commitment is not expressed to everybody in the world. It is expressed because of His covenant only to those who know Christ. His steadfast love is for you and me. Yes, He does have a love for the world, but He only has this kind of love for those that are His. Now, my friend, if that can't bring you to express praise and worship in song from your lips to the Lord, something is desperately wrong in your heart and life. His faithfulness, he said, is to all generations from age to age. Okay, well, so how do we learn to live a life of thanks, of gracious gratitude? Well, we sing to God. I love music. Music can affect me in so many different ways emotionally. I can listen to some kinds of music and I can mellow out to the point that phew, I'm worth nothing. I'm not worth much on my best anyway, but I can really be mellowed. I, I can listen to some music that can take me to the depths of despair and depression if I listen to it. Other music lifts my heart and mind but I'm going to tell you, every single morning, I wake up with some song on my lips. Now, I would like to say to you, it is always praise to the Lord. Sometimes it's because I dreamed of three-dog night during the night. I don't know. I don't know why it is. 
Sometimes I, I'm so thankful that when, when Tony will start a song and it's always something focused on praising the Lord in the early part of the day because it helps get that other stuff out of my mind. But you see, God writes His words and His truths on our hearts. And to sing those to the Lord honors Him. No matter what kind of voice you have, Even if you sing like Justin Swope, God is pleased to hear it, Justin. God is pleased to hear it. Make a joyful noise. Well, a second way we live a life of thanksgiving and thanks living is verse 2, and it is to serve others. Sing to the Lord, but serve others. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. You say, well, that says serve the Lord. Well, okay. How do you serve the Lord? I mean, if you want to take the Lord a meal, where are you going to take it? If you're going to give the Lord an offering, where are you going to give it? Well, we do that in church. But it doesn't just all go into the church for the sake of the church. If you're going to go speak some words of encouragement to the Lord, where do you go to do that? Does he need your words of encouragement? The whole idea is this. We serve the Lord with gladness by serving people. That's how you do that. It is by serving people. People, we serve God by serving others. Listen to this story over in Matthew 24. You've heard it before, but listen closely to what he says. When the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations of the world. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand. That's my right hand. And he will place the goats on his left hand. That's my left hand. But that means nothing about this congregation. I just want you to know that. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning of the creation of the universe. God has prepared a kingdom place for his people to live out all eternity. And he says here, come and inherit it. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now here's the key, verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least 
of these my brothers. You did it to me. Truly, don't question it. Truly, I say to you, if you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now he goes on to say to those on the left hand that you are going to be cast out and there is no inheritance in the kingdom of God for you. And he says to them, that's because you did not serve people. You did not give to them. You did not meet their needs. He said, in fact, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. How do we serve God? We serve God by serving people. And he says we should do it with hearts of gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. What is gladness? It is exuberant joy. Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but with exuberant joy to give ourselves away in serving other people. I know it's a small thing, but I think it could be a big thing. Something I've thought about for a couple of years and never just followed through to push and push and push. But if the Lord should leave us here for another year, you know what one thing I wish that we could start doing as a church family to serve our neighbors and to serve those who are less fortunate than ourselves, to serve families from like Potter's House and and others that we serve Wouldn't it be great if annually on the morning of Thanksgiving, if we prepared a huge feast here? We've got the facilities for it. We've got the resources for it. To prepare a Thanksgiving meal for anyone and everyone around us, college students who are stuck here over the holidays or have come here from far, far away places. Of families that don't have enough, we get asked for help every single week over the phone. I sit where I look out the window at this little blessing box out here, and I see no less than six to eight cars a day that pull in to see if there's any food in that box. And when it's filled up, it is emptied almost uh, immediately every time that it's filled up. There are needs around us. And we could become known as a place that on Thanksgiving, just at least that one time a day on Thanksgiving, once a year, that we have a place here that people could come and eat all they wanted to eat. And we could just do it for the sake of not expecting anything in return. No payment, just us serving our community. It would be a tangible, measurable thing we could do as unto the Lord. So I'd appreciate if you'd make that happen. All right. (laughs) Point number three. Dan, it's yours. Run with it. (laughs) 
Point number three. How do we turn thanksgiving into thanksgiving? How do we express a gracious gratitude to God in our life and living? The writer of this song said we should sing to the Lord. We should serve others. Now get ready. This is the rub. This is the hard part. Number three, we sacrifice ourselves. We sacrifice ourselves. Well, Pastor, that's a great idea about Thanksgiving dinner. I can't do that because my family always has these plans, blah, blah. Sacrifice ourselves. There are people around me that need help, and I, I'm aware of that, and I'm going to pray for them, but sacrifice yourself. That's what he said in, let me get back to my text. That's what he said at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. It says at the end of verse 3, we are his people and the what? Say it. Sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love, his loving kindness endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Keep in mind, this is not lost on the Jewish people. They understand when you say that we should enter his gates with thanksgiving. They're talking about the gates, not to the city of Jerusalem, but the gates to the temple mount. Come into his gates of the temple. Come into the presence of God with thanksgiving. Enter into his courts with praise. Give thanks, bless his name. But it begins by saying, we are his people. We are his sheep. Now that's not just redundancy. There's a very specific meaning. We are his people. When it came to the presence of the Lord and serving the Lord, singing His praises, coming and going from the temple, people came and went, right? Came and went. They came into His presence, then they left, and we go back to their homes. But many of the people coming into the courts would be leading sheep, right? Leading sheep. They would have in their arms a lamb. They would be bringing these other animals. We are his people. Not they are the sheep. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. What was the purpose of sheep coming into the temple of the Lord? As a sacrifice. As an offering unto God. While the people came and went, the sheep came and never went. They came and were sacrificed. For them, it was a one-way trip. What is God saying here? 
He's saying, you are my people, but you are my sheep. You are a sacrifice unto me. You should live your lives as a sacrifice unto me. You say, well, that seems unfair. That's too much to ask. Was it too much for God to offer up His only begotten, His one and only Son as a lamb of sacrifice to pay for your sins? God's not embarrassed to ask you for your life. God's not ashamed. God is not in any way intimidated about asking you to give yourself totally to Him. He gave up His only Son for you. And the very reason He did that was because your wicked sinfulness could not be paid in any other way. It caused the wrath of God to fall on His Son. Your sins caused the wrath of God to fall on His Son. Now, He could have required your life as payment for your sin, but your life couldn't pay for your sins. So He allowed and instructed and ordained that His Son would. And if your sins cost him his son, then now that we know the free pardon of sin and the forgiveness of God, what is so unreasonable about God saying, now you be the sheep and sacrifice yourself for me? Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies or because of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It is your spiritual service. You call yourself a Christian. This is how you live the Christian life. Sacrifice yourself. And that's more than just being willing to die for Him if the need ever arises. It means you sacrifice your desires and your whims and your lifestyle right now for the sake of the lost people around you that need to know Christ. Do not be conformed to this world. Why do we spend so much time trying to look like the world? Now, I could just really bear down right now if I wanted to. Why do we feel like we have to dress like the world? Why do we feel like we have to have what the world has? Why do we feel like we have to wear our hair, what little we got left, like the world wears their hair? I'm thinking about dyeing mine pink and green while I still have it. I see people all around me doing that. Why shouldn't I? I think I might just cover myself up with some tattoos. Everybody else has one. I need one too so I can be like them. I'm going to get me some jeans that you can see my legs all in the front when I come walking towards you. Why in the world do we pay all kinds of money to have something that my mama would have thrown out a long time ago or patched up and got me a new pair? We do so many things to be like the world. And he says here, don't be conformed to the world. 
It's not going to make you more acceptable to them. You know, we could do some things here in church to make ourselves maybe more like the world. We could dim our lights. We could get ourselves one of them fog machines. We could get some pink and purple lights shining on the back wall. It could look like a regular nightclub in here. Do you think the lost people would pour in here if we looked more like them here? I'm going to tell you, we try to adorn the gospel by doing all of these stupid things personally and corporately to try to look good and be appealing in the eyes of the world. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. It doesn't work. And if it does work, they're coming in the door for the wrong reason. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed. Be transformed. By what? By the renewal of your mind. Learn to think God's thoughts. Think differently. Think like the scripture. That by testing, you may be able to discern what is the will of God. That will that is good and acceptable and perfect. Sacrifice yourself. Paul told the Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You have him from God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. God bought you. If you're a Christian, God owns you. If you are a true Christian, the Bible calls you God's slave. God's slave. Now that's awful talk with our present sensitivities and sensibilities in our world. But folks, I'm going to tell you, I am a slave of God. I have been made to do His will. But not because I'm a preacher, because I'm a saved Christian. And the same is true for you. Sacrifice yourself. Well, I've taken too much of your time. Basically, seven imperatives, seven commands in this psalm. Worship Him. Sing joyfully to the Lord. Join in His work. Serve the Lord with gladness. Three, live daily in His presence. Come before Him. That's the appeal. Pursue Him. Know that the Lord, He is God. Make your life a daily sacrifice. Enter into His gates as one of His sacrificial lambs. Live with an attitude of gratitude every single day. Give thanks to Him. Number seven, acknowledge Him as Lord. Bless His name. Amen? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this great old song of worship. May we catch the spirit of it. May we be people who worship You with exuberant joy, uninhibited, unafraid to sing praises to your name and to live for you and to not be conformed to this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.